John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 5. Entry 1076.EZ2613, Certificate Number 31616, The Rite of Spring Riot. We heard from a listener named Marianne, who had actually suggested the Rite of Spring Riot as a topic. Oh, and then she's coming back at us saying... You didn't do it well enough? <laughs> no, she was very happy. I mean, we, I had already wanted to do the Rite of Spring Riot as a topic. Right. Uh, but she is a professional musician with, it seems, quite a bit of expertise in 20th century music history. Congratulations, Mary. She says she has a tattoo that refers to uh, the work of composer Charles Ives. I see. I don't know how you would get a tattoo of classical music. So she's not... Uh, she's not just one of these people that sits around in a bar and tries to remember all the names of the bass players of indie rock bands. She's actually a music historian. Yeah, it becomes classier if it's classical instead right. of classical or jazz, right. as who opposed played, to any who, other genre. You, if you know all the bass players that ever played with Miles Davis, it's much cooler than knowing the bass players that played with uh, Smashing Pumpkins. That's exactly right. <laughs> Although I could probably do better on the Smashing Pumpkins half of that. Uh, but she had an interesting take on the Rite of Spring from the perspective of a musician, hmm. of which she is one. She said it was very common to play, to hear the Rite of Spring uh, when she was studying undergrad music. You you couldn't walk through the practice rooms without hearing somebody playing part of Rite of Spring. Sure, it's like walking through a guitar center. You're definitely going to hear Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> it is the Stairway to Heaven of 20th century classical music, apparently. And uh, she says that uh, there is a 1913, a very early recording of Rite of Spring played by the Boston Symphony. And because, you know, as you'll recall from the show, this was a groundbreaking work, very innovative use of polyrhythms, weird, weird melodies, weird chords... Uh, and you can hear, I guess, on these early recordings that the musicians are not good at it yet either. Uh-huh. Because this is not an idiom they are accustomed to. Um, you can tell the playing is sloppy. I guess, you know, you get good at knowing how certain runs are going to sound, and I guess it's not that different from chord progressions on a guitar. Whenever we go into the recording studio, your goal is to make it sound like you've been playing the song for years, but... You've only just learned it. Obviously, you haven't. And when you hear when you hear records where it's clear that this is only their fifth pass through the song, 
and then you go see the band and you're like, wow, you're way better at playing that song. Uh, there are, there are certain records that, that, uh, that where that really stands out. The album version is not as good. I guess I'm one of very few people who recently watched you cover a Rush song. Yes. Not usually part of the Long Winters live set. Right. Uh, Played a version of Limelight on the Joko Cruise. And it looked like a challenging song to play. It's challenging. It's challenging because I was playing it with a pickup band of mm -hmm. uh, musicians of sort of varying interests. Everyone on the everyone in the band was was good, but... There are a lot of time signature changes, and if you're not that kind of musician who likes to go from seven to three, uh, it's not going to be as native to you. And I assume also weird chord stuff that's not does not match your normal guitar vernacular. For me, I was I was working in a in a um, yeah a sort of uh, because Rush is a band that also pioneered their style, and all three members of Rush were playing. Um, I think uh, the drummer of this tune commented to me that all three players were playing in their own time signature, and it just so happened they were playing over each other, <laughs> like um, on the recording. You on mean? the recording, not, not in your it, not in your life, and you know, in their in their in their general style. Yeah. So I was not making chord shapes that were familiar to me. No. And I, but I loved your solution for the guitar solo you did not want to play. <laughs> yes, I, I recruited a violinist. Uh, Mary Kobayashi. You asked our it. friend Mary Kobayashi to play the guitar solo. <laughs> I did. I said, "You play that." It sounds more like a violin solo, anyway. Well, the crowd went nuts. Yeah, like everyone loved hearing. You know, I, I assume these are Rush fans who can hear the guitar solo in their head. And now, how fun! Yes, to have a violinist take a crack at it. I think that the the overlap between people on a nerd cruise Gamer and people nerds. that love Rush pretty pretty strong. Uh, not us. We're the cool kids who had annoying college roommates who liked Rush. Yeah, uh, Marianne tells us that uh, not only is are the early recordings of Ride of Spring terrible because the orchestra doesn't know what they're doing with this kind of music, like the style is kind of all over the place, but she also says that Stravinsky was a bad conductor. I've heard that. Uh, uh, really? Yeah. Uh, who are you hanging out with that they're saying, well, you know, Stravinsky was a notoriously poor composer, a conductor of his own work. The thing is that, that, that um, to be a good, uh, for instance, a good critical theorist is not the same as being a good professor of critical theory. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same. Like to, to be a conductor is a separate set of Those skills. Are totally different skills. Totally like, different. It would be like some authors are very good at reading their own work. Right. Some uh, are terrible. at Right. It. Like Neil Gaiman has an amazing voice for reading his own work and it really comes alive. Other authors, you'd rather it'd be fingernails on a chalkboard because that's a performing skill and there's no reason it should overlap with being able to, to do it on a word processor. I've heard authors read from books where it was clear they didn't understand the cadence of their own writing. <laughs> That's really interesting. It's nuts. Whatever their process is, it does not involve what I do, which is to kind of try to hear the sentences in my head. Yeah. And if it's too garbled or too complicated, you go back and revise. Marianne says that not only is Stravinsky's conducting awful, but you can actually hear his shoes squeak. <laughs> so he, there's a she has a fashion note as well. <laughs> I guess that's a thing where you can you know on Glenn Gould recordings you can sure. uh, hear, hear him, him grunting, muttering, yeah. and whatever his weird whatever weird stuff he's doing, posture stuff he's doing. On he the shouldn't bench. be wearing corduroy. You hear it through the. <laughs> you can add. You can be like a one man band. You can add your own. Uh, what what is that? Woodblock. What's the <laughs> instrument that sounds most like 
uh, a large gentle, husky gentleman walking in corduroy pants. Oh, it, it's uh, the, what is it? The Guerra, right? The, oh, yeah. The, I don't know what those are called. Hang on. But let, yes, one of those. Let me make sure I get that right. I have one in my living room that looks like a frog. And the kids love it because yeah. they're different sizes. And, you know, if you play the big one, it's... And the, high, the smaller one goes... And do you know what they're called? Uh, it is the Guerra. Oh. Or the... The Guira, I guess. I I, I, I say Guira because I, I think of it as an instrument of war. But it's really the Guira, and it's a Dominican instrument, and it is. It's sort of there are a lot of different ones. Does it have two of, dots over the U? It does. That makes it the most metal instrument. It is the most metal <laughs> instrument. The Guira. And also there's a dot over the I, so it's an umlaut and a half. Whoa, one point. That's a weird time signature. Even Rush never played anything in 1.5 umlauts. Well, and that's true of Dominican music, too. There's a lot going on uh, polyrhythmically. Entry 1323.JG0119. Certificate number 16197. The Toyota Hilux. As we pointed out when we added the Hilux to the omnibus, it's not... A large truck. No, no. Although, like in all things, trucks get bigger and bigger. And so the Toyota line of trucks now has full-size trucks, trucks as big as Fords. But the early Hiluses were, were smaller than Small. the ones today? Yeah, they were they were what you would call a mini truck or, you know, they, they've grown in size um, maybe not exponentially, but uh, they're probably twice as big as they were. Exponentially would be crazy. Yeah, it'd be nuts. Like, what right? if that truck doubles every <laughs> six months? But, uh, but yeah, the new the new trucks under that uh, sort of the umbrella of that style, they're quite a bit bigger. The the thing you said about Toyotas getting bigger is interesting because I assume that relates to a cultural shift related to what trucks mean to their drivers. Like, truck owners are looking for a certain kind of size, a perceived power, authority, potency. I don't want to make any speculations about the size of their genitalia. All those things are true, but also there's a there's a strange wrinkle in the way that um, American cars are exempted from emissions controls and from safety con- uh, equipment. Wait, what? If they are called trucks. And so trucks and SUVs are a different class of vehicle. And so that doesn't seem eight years of Obama and that didn't get that loophole didn't get closed. Huh? Yeah, unfortunately, but, but it was certainly true um, in the early days of SUVs that basically if you sold a station wagon, you were responsible for it getting a certain amount of mileage and having all these improvements. But if you put all the station wagon accoutrements inside of a truck chassis, all of a sudden you could, you could sidestep all that stuff. So there was, there was a truckification of America that was partly, at least, a result of automakers uh, seeing fighting trucks, regulation. Yeah, seeing trucks as a loophole, and why you know the Aerostar uh, was the was a a minivan, but if you made it into a into a what was the first Ford SUV the um, Explorer? Explorer. If you turned an Aerostar into an Explorer, all of a sudden it was both more macho and cheaper to make. Uh, a listener named Matthew points out that uh, you know trucks are now, and specifically large trucks, are a real signifier in country music. Sure, you're a, you're a good old boy if you've got 
you know, a real, a, you know, a big, rugged, American-made truck. If you've ever driven across the state of Nebraska, you you will know this. The bigger the truck, the more truck there is. The more truck nuts. It's so there, there are. are so many freaking huge trucks in the in the uh, the Middle West and Plains. And you've heard the, you've heard these kind of lyrics, yeah. right? That uh, you know, you can take my wife, but don't take my truck. My girl just loves my truck. Uh, Matthew, however, drives a 2008 Nissan Frontier. Oh. Or Frontier, as I call them. Frontier. And, uh, He's a traitor to American industry, but sure. And so he... Although he, it's he, probably made in Tennessee. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he enjoyed the discussion of smaller, kind of city-fied trucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a musician in a little band called Maple Leaf. We're getting a lot of musicians in this episode. We are. I think it's because they know you're their people. Yeah, coming out of the woodwork. Uh, Maple Leaf. Yeah, are you a fan of Maple Leaf? Oh, they're you know. Do you love their SoundCloud? One of, one of my faves. Uh, they uh, they have a song uh, that he wrote called "Light Duty Guy," <laughs> which kind of goes against the prevailing trends in country music to discuss someone who might drive a light duty truck. something like a Toyota Hilux. Let's listen to a little of it right now. Don't run four hundred horses. Got one thirty four. Don't go. Road be crazy to try. Little Japanese four banger who wants for more? Not me. I'm a light duty guy. Well, you know, it's a funny, uh, funny song. I mean, it's a novelty song, but also it's a classic. Uh, it's a classic example of someone who is uh, writing in the country vernacular, but it's clear they are not living the country vernacular life because it sounds like a they might be giant song that is the uh that's the source of the humor i guess it's right. just like nerdcore rap yeah. where you know if somebody's spitting some fire new lyrics about pokemon go it's a very different experience yeah and it, and it and it's um you know it's it are, if, you, are you saying he doesn't appear to have actual well no the it sounds like doesn't have country in his soul sounds like he's a light duty guy is what it sounds like i mean it's not they're not wrong but if if uh, if if John Linnell and John Flansburg wrote a song about uh, a song pickup they trucks. were trying to make about pickup trucks, it would sound it would sound like that. What's the most country song in the They Might Be Giants songbook? I mean, Minimum Wage is kind of a theme from Rawhide quality, although I don't know how country it is. When you think about it, they're you know even though they're from Massachusetts, um, they're pretty country. It's the nasal voice, especially John Linnell kind of nasal voice is mm-hmm. that is that why we think that well and also they're you know they're the great craftspeople of the american songbook they can they're masters of all genres and yeah, idioms. they also have a record called lincoln what could be more country i don't think well a lot of country people i mean he is lincoln was a republican but but lincoln is a town in nebraska <laughs> that's true i'm just saying maybe they wouldn't vote for him today oh i see what you're saying yeah probably not Entry 1282.1C1220. Certificate number 33564. The Tech Model Railroad Club. Did we hear from a bunch of MIT graduates? We we did hear from one MIT grad in particular. Let me start there. Apparently, I made some crack in the episode about the art scene at MIT. Uh-oh. 
And apparently, and this person sent a killer robot after you. <laughs> no, he wrote a, a one act about it. <laughs> apparently, MIT has a thriving club scene. Now, this is our friend Dane, who is now at the Henry Ford Museum oh, in Detroit. How cool! Uh, so he could uh, he could show us the square dancing floor where racist American square dancing was born. <laughs> he also sent us a postcard that that metallic. Dimaxian house. Oh yeah. Postcard. Oh, what a cool thing. And I, I saw somewhere that he was offering tours. If we wanted to go visit yes. the Dimaxian. Next house. time we're in Detroit, we need to look him up. Okay. Good. Assuming the quarantine is lifted. Good. Uh, they've got, they've got great food in Detroit. We should, we should make a trip. You should do an episode about Detroit cuisine. You've Detroit only, you've food. only done Cincinnati. Well, but yeah, I heard from some Detroit people saying that the Coney was a big part of the Detroit food scene, and how dare we? That's true. Yeah. I guess you did Philadelphia and Cincinnati, and now everyone's going to want one. Yeah. Uh, Dane, before his work at the Henry Ford Museum, was the assistant to the executive director of arts at MIT, which is not... Not a, the assistant director of arts at MIT, but assistant the assistant to, to, to the, the director. And that sounds like a joke, but apparently, according to Dane, MIT has a lively and incredible art scene, and especially nowadays that a lot of effort has gone into making sure that the arts at MIT are not uh, a punchline. He's right. A- well, like the grading of gems, um, arts are 100% subjective or 89% subjective. Right. I'm always saying computer science is an art, <laughs> but that is not what Dane is implying. I think what happened is they found that a lot of these high achieving uh, engineering and computer students were also made to do violin and piano. Right. As because kids. music is math. And math is music. And there's just some overlap in the kind of... Uh, tiger moms? I, I don't want to see tiger mom. I don't, I'm not trying to racially charge this. But the, the kind of high-achieving parent that would turn out a computer engineer child maybe also made the kid take violin lessons. Right. Suzuki method. So they had amazing instrumentalists. So now they have a conservatory-level music program. Um, they put architecture and design in their arts program, which is kind of cheating a little. Right. All of these are just math. Because there's some math there. And the theater program is run by Jay Scheib, who is the guy that did that, um, the ad- the theatrical adaptation of Bat Out of Hell that was oh. a big hit on the West End, you know, the Meatloaf right. musical. Uh, so he just wanted us to know that it is a world-class art scene, hmm. and he is not a fan of us snickering under our breath about it, and that's that's fair enough. The thing is that uh, classical music is uh, is a good example of a thing that you can you can make very competently and it can sound very good but you can also be somewhat passionless in it because there are versions of art which are closer to math and accomplishable but without any heart. Are you saying at Oberlin all these Capital R romantics are, are throwing themselves into their punk bands or whatever, their emo bands, their shoegaze bands. But at, but at MIT, it's all these soulless nerds playing uh, Telemon. Well, I mean, if your, art, if your world-class art scene also includes your architecture department, I'm going to say it doesn't sound like it has a whole lot of like, um, like really crazy out there stuff happening. The other uh, note we got about the Tech Model Railroad Club comes from another um, museum-type professional. We heard from... Why am I not surprised? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
pretty much all of our listeners are archivists of one kind or another, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> They're either librarians or ichthyologists. This is my favorite thing ever. Nick Fry uh, is the curator at the John W. This is in St. Louis at the John W. Berger the Third National Railroad Library. Oh God, I want a job there. Can you imagine like what a dream job that would be? I mean, you love the railroads. I do. I'm a librarian at heart. Also, you're in St. Louis, so you've got railroads. Going up and down, back and forth. I think it is not a coincidence that our National Railroad Library is in St. Louis. And I like to imagine that it's some kind of impenetrable Fort Knox of American, <laughs> of American Railroad archives. Uh, everything's in some – it's hidden in the, in the uh, gateway arch or something. I wish that that job also came with power, like real power. You don't think he's uh, – I mean power to reshape the Americas. Well, it, from, a, from a railroad archiving standpoint or just all aspects of, of government and culture? I believe that if you went into the archives, you could develop a worldview, a railroad-centric <laughs> worldview that then you could take out and build into an architecture if you also became a, des- a despot. The Tech Railroad Club uh, entry, we talked a lot about the overlap between model railroads and hacker culture, you know, what became the, the digital and information age. Right. Uh, and he pointed out something we did not mention, which is that the railroads were early adopters of computerization and digital algorithms in industry. Um, you mean not just in switching, but also in largely switching and tracking. There used to be there used to be just rooms full of clerks, yes, telling you where every car was going to wind up, and, and in that case, what order it should be in which train. And that transmitted down to guys that were moving levers, physical levers. Right. So it's not it's not just controlling the switching. It's also optimizing packet destinations. Car, yeah, which is which I guess in trains is called blocking. But it's the same thing you would do over a computer network if you're trying to optimize where different packets of data go. And, it, and, it, and so it's, they were doing this with cows instead of with data. As they set up a train, as they're building one in a in a freight yard, um, they're putting cars in those lines in certain order. And I had never thought about that. Because when they arrive at a destination, they want to take the cars off the back. And sometimes they're going to, it's going to be split up. Yeah. You know, sometimes that train is going to get somewhere and those blocks of cars are going to get placed on, switched onto different tracks to different destinations. All you have to do is hop a freight once or twice, Ken, and you will find yourself sitting on a siding at one point because the block of cars that you were riding on got shunted off and set to molder. So you need to be a hacker hobo yeah. who like somehow uh, while you've, while you're on your boxcar, you've also got a little handheld bleeping and blooping device that's hacked into the, found a back door into the mainframe. And so you know where your particular boxcar is going to go. You do have to figure it out. I, I, I hopped on a freight one time that was, I was on a flat car that was carrying cement railroad ties that had been stacked in a kind of Lincoln log tower. Mm-hmm. Jenga? Um, a, a Jenga tower, right. And, you know, they're, they're replacing creosote-soaked wood ties with these concrete ties. And it seemed like a great place to ride because you were sheltered for the most part. I mean, the, you, it's like hiding inside a, a rack at, yeah. at dress bar when you're a kid. Nobody could see in. And also, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, every time you get on a freight train, you have to think in terms of a derailment. Like, if the car derails, is this a safe place to be? Wait, you do? Well, yeah, because hobos are killed in train derailments. Are derailments common enough that you have to think about that? More common than you might think, but I don't... I I I assumed it was like a plane crash that, you know, you can just kind of assume it's not going to happen to you. I imagine that because there are a lot more people on an airplane, that over time, if you took all the deaths from train derailments and all the deaths from airplane crashes, that you probably would still have more from plane crashes. 
But anyway, I at least was thinking, if there's a derailment, is this a safe place to ride? Maybe and you're just a melancholic man. I am. But, uh, but it seemed like this Jenga tower of concrete was, I mean, if the train went over the side, I would probably be mashed. But uh, stupidly, it felt like a safe place to be. Anyway, I got, uh, I arrived someplace and my little packet of cars got shunted off on a siding and the train took off. Oh. And I was stuck on this flat car in my little hidey hole. And I thought, oh, of course, this is not like, this isn't produce. Yeah, there's no, there's there's, no ticking clock on these right. cement ties. There's no rush. And like, what a dummy. Like I got on a car that's, that's going to sit here probably for six months. So I got off and I went, oh, I was wandering around this baking hot rail yard and eventually got so bummed that I stuck out my thumb. And Does that work with trains? It doesn't, but I got picked up by a guy in a truck and he took me up the road and, you know, drove me five hours somewhere and I got to a town and I pitched a tent. Anyway, hilariously, the next day I'm, I'm standing in that rail yard of that little town trying to figure out what train I'm going to get on and I see my flat car of cement railroad ties hustle by me, lickety split. If I had just stayed on it, I would have. There's a lesson there. It got, you know, it got shunted off on a different route. And here it was headed to Fort Collins. Next time you're tempted to switch lines on the supermarket because you think you're in the slow one. That's what Remember John and his cement ties. I think about it all the time. Where would I be now? Uh, he, uh, maybe this is, this is very naive, but as someone who just thinks of trains as something to sit and watch, like I think of trains as like a, the way. Something to spot maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't have, I don't make a study of it, but I think of them as just looking at a landscape or watching a sitcom. It's right. just, it's just, to me, trains are eye candy. Yeah. And so I, I never, I had ne- say, I had never considered that the order actually mattered. Right. I guess I, I assume they, maybe they'd been chosen for aesthetic reasons. You want a nice run of, uh-huh. of, of a certain kind of box car and then we'll have the refrigerator cars and. Right. Do it by color. Yeah. Like the way people organize their bookshelves by color now. Wouldn't it be cool if a train just tapered from, from <laughs> tallest car to shortest car? That would be the least aerodynamic. <laughs> Oh yeah, I guess that's you, right. You want it to go. For, you want the the oh, wedge on the front. No, no, that's not true. You want the wedge at the back because if you're if you're if you have a flat edge at the back, it creates uh, drag. Oh, that's right? true. You want it to be. That's the problem with American car design. All American cars would be more aerodynamic if they drove backwards, and the caboose would be the spoiler of that, of such a train. That's right, right up front, the air dam. Uh, Anyway, so that's interesting that, uh, you know, computers now, that's all an, an optimized process that some algorithm has told the railroad hmm. what order, which cars need to go when and which order they should be in. We also, because I think we were recording in December, we mentioned the association of trains with Christmas, mm-hmm. but I don't think we really interrogated that much. Or interrogated it. What did I say? You said interrogate. It's an E. It's interrogate. It's interrogate. Interi- or it would be an I. Interrogate. I guess it, Two is, E's. it is interior. You don't say interior. Right. Interior would be like where you're, where a milk bone biscuit ends up. Or in a terroir. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, but uh, according to Nick, and I believe him, he's the only curator of a railroad library who is going to be on this podcast today. Right. Today. Uh, he tells us that Christmas trains, the tradition of a, of a, of a train as a Christmas present is partially it's a marketing gimmick a successful marketing gimmick by the lionel company 
in the early 20th century. Sure, of course. That was able to make us think of trains as a Christmas thing. We've discovered that everything is uh, is just a 20th century marketing thing. We actually have not yet because <clears throat> that's on an episode that will come out two months after this. Right, called... Should Civilization Survive? <laughs> of course. So this is a preview of uh, entry uh, 256 about Tanzanite. Uh but apparently Christmas trains are the same way, and it also derives from the German tradition of Christmas pickles are a fake Christmas tradition. Right, but... But Christmas villages are a real Christmas tradition. Germans love having these little miniature houses. They love it because they can be the undisputed ruler of a little yeah, they community can, of houses. They can roll in with tanks and knock over the whole oh, thing Oh, even they before want. that, they can come in with their army of Swedish mercenaries and salt the earth. They, they, have, they all have sabers, <laughs> and they can impale them. No, but you know, and this is a common thing that Americans, even those not of Central European heritage, will often do is set out these ornate little well-lit winter villages right, it's around a, Christmas in your living room. It's an advent calendar, but made real. Basically, and you collect different... Pieces. Gingerbread houses. Right, right. So there is there is a level of miniaturization to Christmas that came via Central Europe and now really lent itself to the model train. Because if you've already got a bunch of huh. little toy buildings sitting around, sure. like what what's the thing you need to liven them up? I mean, electric light will do a little bit, but right. nothing better than a train zipping around the whole setup. What a great idea. Or I mean, what, a, what an interesting connection. So that, according to our railroad curator friend, uh, explains trains... And Christmas. Entry 524.JB1808. Certificate number 34620. George Bush's crack dealer. Uh, now, we should not erase George Bush's crack dealer by not naming him, as we heard on the uh, original entry. His name was Keith Jackson. Right. Not the football Keith. booth guy, but, uh, but Keith Timothy Jackson of Washington, D.C., who gets... Uh, manipulated by a variety of law enforcement agencies into railroaded s- selling crack to the white house. Right. Yeah. Where's our railroad library now to talk about this poor railroaded guy. <laughs> One thing we did not mention is what happened to Keith after his, uh, his, uh, prison sentence. Oh yeah. I wondered what happened to Keith. He does kind of drop off the map. And He's a U.S. Senator now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he changed his name to Cory Booker. No, he. Uh, we heard from a listener named David who did a little research and found out that it's no coincidence that we couldn't unearth Keith. Keith does not want to be unearthed. He oh. has he has dodged reporters for decades. Interesting, because you know the the media is like the only the fourth estate of the only people who still remember this story and want to do the occasional check in whatever happened to. Did he go straight? Did he marry uh, like a Christian girl from his high school and now is now he wears a mullet and his name is. Billy Bob? It seems not unlikely. Maybe not the mullet part. Right. But it seems not unlikely that he is uh, married to somebody nice and goes to church on Sunday because even though he refuses to talk to reporters, it's now a matter of public record, according to a Washington Weekly that, that uh, tried to track him down in the year 2000. Uh, you know, fall 2000 was a good time for George Bush nostalgia because mm-hmm. it seemed like his son would not be president, but then he was, uh, it's a matter of public record that Jackson was released from prison after almost a decade in jail in August of 1998. He got out of a jail in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. So what was that? 10 years later? Almost a decade. Yeah. For, for this, uh, single weird entrapment, uh-huh. uh, crack sale. 
Uh, and today, he was tracked down by this reporter. He, today? No. In the year 2000. When I say today, I mean 20 years ago, John. I see. Sure. But 20 years ago, the last time the media wrote about him, he was living in a green, a pea soup colored two-story house with white shutters, a foreign car in the driveway. and if, it, And if not a picket... Yeah. He's a bad American. And if not Toyota Hilux, and if not a picket fence, at least a nice chain link fence in a close in Washington suburb. So he seems to be living a respectable, affluent life now. Well, when you say foreign car, you know, we typically think that that means an exotic, like, oh, he's driving a Jaguar. But like a Hyundai is also a foreign car. Right. I assume maybe we're supposed to have a picture of him as a regular suburban guy who drives a Nissan Altima. Sure. Or, or maybe it's an RX-7. <laughs> right. I think they would mention. Maybe it's an 84 I think RX-7. we're supposed to picture a Corolla. I see. It, it's all designed not to give the guy away. It doesn't say where the suburb is, what the car is, right. where the, what the address is. If it was an Austin Healey, maybe it would narrow the <laughs> search. Uh, but uh, according to this reporter, who appears to have firsthand notice, uh, he and members of his family give the media the same treatment that most homeowners give the Jehovah's Witnesses. They politely but swiftly shut the door. Yes. So do not try to track down Keith and ask about his second act, but it appears that he's, he's in a better place now, or at least was in the year 2000. I'm glad. Although let's hope he's not living in the furnace room or like the, the owners of that house have allowed him to, to dig out a little coffin-shaped depression. It seems to be he and his family members that are opening the door, at least in this weekly's account. That's nice. And so. you can imagine not ever wanting to revisit that that moment in your life because it's not really that, it's not that cool, right? Like, I mean, on one, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to drink out on that anecdote, you could, you could turn it into a cool story, but you're kind of the dupe. I have some experience here, and it is a little bit trying even to get asked for decades about the cool thing you did. Right. Like, I, you know. Wait a minute. No, when did you ever do a cool thing? Oh, I had a, uh, I, don't, I don't even have a joke here. <laughs> I had a members-only jacket in 1985. Pretty I wa- sweet. I watched a motorcycle gang drive by <laughs> and got asked about it for the local paper. Uh, you know, nobody has anything bad to say about Jeopardy. Sure. So people are always delighted to recognize me and there's no end of... But you're tired of talking radio about it. It's, I, I still love the show. I still had a great experience, you know, if... But how many if, if different... We're, if we're at dinner and you want to talk about it, that's fine. But if a, if a DJ from Akron, Ohio shows up in my inbox right. wanting me to, to come on his show and tell Jeopardy stories from 2004... I understand the impulse of Keith to sure. to just close the door. You've run out of of versions of the same stories, right? And it's it's the same kind of thing where I feel like I'm I'm kind of the dupe of the story, not in that I you know got tricked by Jeopardy, but just that it's somebody else's thing. Like when people tell me that they enjoy Omnibus or that my they liked one of my books, I have a real sense of ownership over that that I don't get when people are like, "Hey, you're the guy from Jeopardy," right? You don't own Jeopardy yet. Yet. Entry 320.GN4519. Certificate number 14871. The Death of Trolleys. We heard from Tim. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. About not the replacements record, but an actual person named Timothy. We didn't hear from Richard Hadley. I thought he would have written us five five letters. About trolleys? Yeah. 
Uh, well, Tim has firsthand experience. We implied that trolleys were kind of a dead art form. We mentioned the places you might see a trolley carcass. Right. Uh, and he wants to let us know that, tro- maybe I'll just quote, the trolleys are still in use to transport people around the fairgrounds in Mount Pleasant, Iowa during the old Thresher's reunion. Now, I loved everything about that sentence. <laughs> I did too. <do. laughs> do you know what the old Thresher's reunion is? Uh, it's got to be a reunion of old Threshers. At one point, it, maybe it was. It, it started in 1950 at the Iowa Fairgrounds. It's a Labor Day weekend. When people still could remember a time when people threshed. I mean, I guess I understand being the last Confederate war widow or something, but is there really nostalgia for people who threshed? Sure. Is that a mark of, of pride? I mean, think about the difference in harvesting a thing with a scythe. Yeah. From harvesting a thing with a tractor. In fact, what I g- learned from the Wikipedia entry is that it, the old threshers are not people. Oh. The old threshers are... Oh, it's a tractor uh, it's, a tractor show. It's old-timey tractors. Oh, I love if it. If you want to go see the steam engines that were once used in the early days of uh, the Industrial Revolution to, to revolutionize agriculture, this is a trade show. So you know about them. the old tractor people? Tell me about the old tractor people. Well, around the globe... Affluent farmers um, often will collect old tractors. And They're huge, I think, a lot of the Some stuff. of the, the really old ones are like as big as locomotives. Uh, <laughs> there are, I think the, the, like the old tractors that you see getting collected are kind of from the 30s and 40s. I recently went on Craigslist here in Washington and considered buying an old tractor was a foolish thing to consider. But it's going can, to be covered with slugs in no time. You can buy, you can buy old, they're surprisingly affordable. You can buy an old tractor and be the hit of your neighborhood 4th of July parade. Um, Is that why every corn maze and, uh, and grocery store and farmer's market has one? Yeah. Because you can, if you can haul it away, you can get one for 80 bucks. Well, I think tractors for a long time, there was a new tractor technology that came around every every couple of seasons. That's how they get you. And uh, and so, you know, your old tractor, you kind of drove it out to the back 40 and left it. Shot it. But those old great tractors, the ones that are, before they had decided exactly what a tractor was going to be, when it was just the early age of like, here's a machine, we can have it do work. Some of those are crazy looking. And you still see them rusting in fields. Um you know, off the side of the road. This reunion sounds pretty good, even if you are not a tractor spotter. Uh, local churches and organizations run food booths. It looks like there's a, a kind of a big name country concert usually. And there are a bunch of electric trolleys brought in from all over the world, as far from Italy. And those are used to transport people between the main area and the log village. Huh. Way to bury the lead, Tim. There's a log village. <laughs> a Christmas village. It's a life-size Christmas village. You can you feel like you're in a model train set. Ding, there's ding. also a steam locomotive. Hey, here we go. There's a steam locomotive that runs between the main area and the Old West town. Come on. When it arrives, the locomotive is, quote, robbed and visitors are treated to a shootout. Why have we not been to the old Thresher's reunion? Get out of Dodge. Literally out of Dodge. What what do we have to do? We should road trip to this. It's uh, apparently Labor Day weekend in uh, Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and hopefully it will not be canceled for virus reasons. The old Thresher's reunion. I'm so happy that this exists. It's not only the only place that trolleys are still plying their trade. One of the few places you can see a shootout. <laughs> <laughs> for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Entry 276.PS8015. 
Certificate number 22560. Compassing. One thing I enjoy about doing these addenda episodes is that we, we hear from actual experts. Sure. I, I knew when we did coppicing that there would be some arborists who came swinging down out of the trees where they live. Uh, not merely an arborist, but in the case of our friend Anthony, a silviculture forester for the U.S. Forest Service in northern Idaho. Whoa, Set there's a, real forest up there. Attached a beautiful photo of an area they, are, they were reforesting back in the fall, uh, which looks lovely. And Why can I not see it? He has, uh, because you never read the email inbox. Why don't you send me it? I see. So what happens here is that I do the work, but if you want something, I just send it on to That's you. That's right. Okay, I'm about to send you a beautiful picture of northern Idaho in real time. Now, uh, he had a bone to pick with us, or a branch, maybe I don't mm-hmm. know their language, mm-hmm. about the way we use the words silviculture and forestry Respectively. Oh, all right. Let's in hear the about entry. it. He's a silver culturalist and forester. Yes, as someone who is both a forester and a silver culturalist, he's uniquely qualified. All right. Well, let's hear to about set it. us right about this. What would you, if you had to guess, what would you say the difference is between forestry and silviculture? Well, I'm not going to even take this bait. Yeah, because you're going to be wrong in a second when I correct you. Yeah, I've we've we've already covered this on the show, and I think it sounds like I got it wrong. Uh, he says, like we both used the. We use both words to kind of mean forest used in general, whereas the difference is the following. Silviculture is the cultivation of forests. Uh, Making, you know, if you're treating... If treating you're, it like a farm. If you're treating it like a farm, then you have to keep insects and disease away. You want to make sure it's, it's healthy and sustainable. You clear the brush, though, in order to reduce fire risk. Like they do in Finland. Yeah. You, you get a rake. Or a mm-hmm. broom or whatever they have. So that's silviculture. So when there's a fire or, or trees get harvested, you know, he's in charge of making sure that the new, the new place is, uh, you know, is going to grow healthy. Uh, forestry is more about, is not the use of forests, it's the management of forests. Now, what I usually understand forest management to be is, and I may be wrong, but kind of like uh, determining what blocks of the forest are going to get forested next. I think that's true. Or, oh, it is. Or which get forest fired. Like, you know, right. we, what what do we protect and what do we not? Where do we plant and where do we not? Where do we cut? Where do we, you know, where do we harvest and where timber and where do we not? So silviculture is the, is the, the minutia of, of, of... It's agriculture, but for forests. Right. Whereas forest management is, um, is moving... Uh, determining what happens to sections of forest. I guess. I get it. They All both right. sound like merit badges. Yeah, and it also feels a little bit like, come on, Anthony, give us a break. He did send us the beautiful picture, though. That is a beautiful picture. And what a picture. great job to be replanting forests in northern Idaho. Well, that looks like a forest that has been logged or... Uh, well, logged, not burned, because there are all those stumps. It, and it does look like logged. And it's being reforested. That's and, nice. And it looks like there was maybe snow on the ground yeah. when they were doing it. It's high, uh, it's high altitude, looks like, or at least medium altitude. Thank you to the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, yes, I love the Forest Service. I am a, you know, I'm a wild forests guy, but there are hardly any of those left. It's a bummer. Yeah. But, you know, as an Alaskan, there are still, I mean, every summer now there are 7 million acres on fire, but there are still some... Still some woods up there. Not all the national parks have been logged yet, and some of that is old growth. That's right. Yeah, some small amount of it. But that's not a criticism of the Forest Service. Or of Anthony. It's just a 
Who seems just, delightful. Anthony is wonderful. And Anthony, I would love to come up to northern Idaho and have you give us a tour when we're driving out to Iowa. On our way to Iowa and then Detroit. Yeah. Here's the tour we're planning. You know, Omnibus, Ken and I are going to get an RV. We're going to drive across America. Solving mysteries. <laughs> like uh, like doing uh, solving mysteries and also doing an episode of Omnibus every day. Uh, yeah, this is not an addenda anymore. Now this is just a travelogue. <laughs> we're just vacation planning now. Here we are in Coeur d'Alene. Entry 122.NU0603, certificate number 19544, Bill W. I'm sure we'll get more. This entry was just released as we record this, and I'm sure we'll hear more about it. People enjoyed, uh, you know, your your kind of personal heartfelt experience with recovery and sobriety. Mm. But this is a different take. This is from a Twitter user called Con Man. Hey, Con Man. But he's not a Con Man. It's spelled like Madeline Con. So. Oh, he's Con Man. So he. Uh, Am I saying that wrong? Con Man. Man. Well, it, it, he's uh, maybe we're going to hear about his wrath potentially. He did actually. There was some wrath of Con Man. Oh. He is complaining about the way it, Bill W is the most recent time we have mentioned the Seventh Day Adventists. On, oh yes. On this. Uh, time capsule but apparently they have come up before because he has a bone to pick he says every time you mention uh the adventist you pronounce it adventist you don't say adventist uh apparently we have not been saying seventh day adventist i say seventh day adventists i've never said seventh day adventists once in my life so apparently this is a a complaint about me Mm -hmm. and i replied and and you said and earlier on this very entry you said advent calendars and you can see why they would pronounce it like advent yes the religious term instead of like adventure which would be the (laughs) right (laughs) or maybe they just don't want to rhyme with dentist i always assume that you are throwing shade at other american like religious sects Oh no! I'm not, you think I'm saying it wrong on purpose? Well, you just you throw a little bit of sideways shade at things. Here's the thing: I am not pronouncing it wrong on oh. purpose, and I'm not even really pronouncing it wrong. If okay. you look up at the word Adventist in Merriam-Webster, it says pronounce it Adventist rather than Adventist. Yes, and I, and I told Conman this. I was like, "Hey, buddy, the dictionary says Adventist." And I he, know you love to do that so much on Twitter, where you're like. Uh, here's the citation. Well, I get now, an- crawl back in your hole. Oh, I get annoyed when no one looks it up first. <laughs> Would it kill them? <laughs> like, it took me 20 seconds to see, hey, is this, is this Bozo right? I Just watching you slap down fools is um, it's one of the best things about Twitter. But when I told him that, the experience of Adventists, he's like, well, yeah, non-Adventists always say Adventists, whereas Adventists always say Adventist. Aha, it's, so it's, a, it's, it's a shibboleth. shibboleth. Exactly. We love shibboleth. And I assume it wasn't chosen to, dis- to differentiate themselves. It's just cultural. Yeah, they, yeah. they hear it pronounced a certain way in services, and, and we don't, so we make the, maybe we make the parallel with words like adventure or, right. or, or dentist. Well, some of us do, except I knew it was Seventh-day Adventist. I think because I've met one or 1,000 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, somewhere between one and one thousand. What I told uh, what I told Conman was that uh, he says, "Well, yeah, exactly. That's how outsiders say it. We say Adventist." And I said, "Well, read the dictionary. Sounds like y'all been saying it wrong." Whoa, whoa! I didn't get a reply after that. <laughs> Major shade. But maybe we should try to say Adventist on the show. We should, you know, if we're in favor of letting people choose their own nomenclature and pronouns and whatnot, pronomenclature, then why not let them choose their own pronunciation? I don't have to let them because I already pronounce it correctly. 
You are talking about us, no. we, as though... No, you're pronouncing it incorrectly. Adventist. And what I'm, Yeah, you're, you're pronouncing it wrong, according to Webster. <laughs> and what I'm saying is, that's okay. We, we could come around to that. We could both agree. What do you mean, we? Who's this royal we? I, I would be saying it wrong knowingly. You would be saying it wrong unknowingly. But the results would be the same. Does I it see. even matter? It's, it's a, now it's a philosophical... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an ethical question. You're right. Like what, now I don't know whether I'm saying it correctly or incorrectly. It's Schrodinger's Adventist. And that concludes the Omnibus Addenda, Volume 5. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context, for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.